0: Hello, and welcome to Unknowable, the podcast where we talk about all things mysterious, unusual, or unknowable. I'm Justine.
1: And I'm Gray. Some weeks we break down one larger mystery between the two of us. Other weeks we pick two smaller mysteries on a theme and teach each other about them based on our own independent research.
0: This week the theme is the genesis of modern UFO and extraterrestrial culture here in the United States. All right, so you want to go first? I think yours kind of leads nicely into mine.
1: Yeah. All right. So, this story begins with a man named Alistair Crowley, who anybody who is sort of initiated into anything paranormal will probably recognize his name, because he's pretty famous.
0: I do recognize the name. I don't really know much else.
1: He is deserving of his own episode. He's a wild human being who engaged in some wild shit throughout his life. Awesome. And it's too much to cover right now. I'm going to give, like, a quick rundown of just sort of who he is so that you understand who he is for the context of the story I'm about to tell. Okay. So Alistair Crowley was born in 1875 in England. Um, he died in 1947 on the 1st of December, oh, this leads which perfectly is
0: perfectly into mine, oh
1: Right. My God. which is also my birthday. Oh, shit. So he died on my birthday. I mean like 50 years before, but yeah, whatever.
0: Close enough.
1: Um, so he was in an a cultist and a ceremonial magician,
0: I don't even know what
1: that is. Right. So you think magician, you think like pulling a rabbit out of a hat, but he was way more into like actual, like rituals, sacrificing animals, contacting demons, spirits, interdimensional entities. Um, he founded his own religion. It was called Thelema, um, based largely on ancient Egyptian mysticism, um, Sort of the central tenet of his religion was that he was a prophet who was sent to guide humanity into the Aeon of Horus, which was sort of, if you think of like um, the Age of Aquarius, (laughs) it's a similar concept to where there's like three Aeons of humanity. So the Aeon of Horus was supposed to be where we as a a race of people, um, you know, reach self-realization and actualization. Whoa. Whatever that means. And he was the prophet who was sent here to do that.
0: Sounds awesome.
1: But throughout his life, he would try to contact various spirits, entities, um, and his methods of doing so were usually taking large amounts of recreational drugs and engaging in strange and bizarre sex acts. Oh. In various combinations therein. Green. To contact demons and other interdimensional entities Hmm. um he was bisexual openly which was a big thing for its day nowadays we're like okay so yeah but back then it was a big deal um and he was kind of famous like he was like well known he was like just like a, a a fringe dweller that was known as you know an occultist magician um so he was born in england but throughout his travels he ended up in new york city in the 1917-1918. So for context, that's when World War I was beginning. Okay. So he was staying with a woman in the Upper West Side of New York in this really fancy apartment, and he was attempting to contact an interdimensional entity. So an interesting little side note is that back in his time extraterrestrials weren't known as extraterrestrials. They called them interdimensional beings. So the idea of an alien, they were called interdimensional. That's so awesome. it's sort of an interesting perspective because we think of aliens in our culture a lot as very scientific and very much like rooted in technology and science. Hmm. Whereas in his day, Alistair Crowley viewed aliens and extraterrestrials or interdimensional beings in like terms of magic and Hmm. you needed to perform rituals to contact them and open up gateways and portals that we would know nowadays as like wormholes and stuff like that. He was approaching it all from this sort of like ancient Egyptian mystical perspective.
0: I was gonna say nowadays you don't hear people talk about contacting. It's really like we're just being contacted by aliens and extraterrestrials but you don't I don't think I've ever heard of anybody trying to get in touch with them or conjure them
1: right or having even if they want to they don't have a method to do so right because we don't have like you know we think of it in terms of like oh we don't have like a um a telescope to like or not a telescope to like beam our thoughts out into space but alistair crowley believed that he could through these magical rituals he called them workings so through these workings he could contact interdimensional beings whether he believed those to be Sort of like demons or aliens is up for debate, Um, you know. By doing crazy drugs and having sex in various strange ways,
0: right? I mean, I guess any being like that is an interdimensional being. That's really kind of like a big catch-all, right, for all of those things. We just think. I feel like I personally think of spirits and demons as being so separate from right. It's completely partitioned. Why? Why should they be?
1: Right. (laughs) If you think about it, I mean, like even in the context of this show, we're going to talk about. Aliens, we're going to talk about ghosts and spirits. So, like, they're already kind of lumped together in the same category by many people. Yeah. But people within, like, sort of the paranormal community think of them as so partitioned. And maybe those partitions are just created by our mind.
0: Right. Weird. That's oh.
1: awesome. Okay. So, 1917, New York City. hmm He, Alistair Crowley, set about on one of his workings. He called it the Amalantra working. So... He was on various drugs, engaging in various sex acts with this woman whose apartment he was staying at, and he succeeded in making contact with an interdimensional being in his mind. He conjured this being. So this is the way that he describes it. This wasn't simply him having a vision. This was him contacting the entity and the entity formed in the room that he was in. Whoa. fully, like, the body. Like, we're going to get into, like, why that matters. But this wasn't just contact. This was, like, he brought... He he opened a portal through which this interdimensional being entered this Upper West Side apartment in New York City. Wow. And was in the room with him.
0: Yeah. so it's amazing.
1: This interdimensional being was named Lam, L-A-M, which is a Tibetan word for way or path. Okay. So it's unclear whether... Crowley gave lamb this name or whether lamb told him that that was his name
0: huh.
1: but that's the name that this being has okay um so this was a, a series of visions that he had um and he's unclear as to like what happened during this exchange whether like there was information exchanged um
0: Is that it was, he was definitely high as fuck?
1: right he was all fucked up he doesn't even remember doesn't even know but he doesn't talk about it that much in a lot of his works like he talks he was a prolific writer he wrote all kinds of books and would meticulously detail all of his like workings and rituals mm. um and this is one of those events where he almost like glosses over it and um i thought that was interesting because it's like when you read some of his work it sounds almost like he's embellishing and he's just kind of trying to you know keep up the whole like like image of being this like wild occultist dude and so he's kind of embellishing his stories but this story he kind of just presented as fact and then just moved on almost like it you know it happened to him he didn't know what to make of it so he just left it how it was because he didn't want to embellish it weird i thought that was a little interesting yeah side note um so the the really interesting part of the story is that as lamb physically manifested in the room with him he I didn't mention, but he was he was not only a prolific writer, but he was also an artist. He painted and drew. Okay. Um, he did a, a, a large number of self-portraits, which are all kinds of weird and strange drawings and paintings. But um, so while this being is manifested in front of him, he sketched what this being looked like. Oh, cool! From life, so it's interesting because like it's not just like he had the experience and then afterwards sat down and drew it. He sat there staring at the being, staring at his drawing, staring at the being. And drew it wow. from life as you would like a like a, a character study.
0: Wow, I've never um, heard of that ever happening before.
1: Right, that's wild. This is all kinds of wild. Damn. So, if you're near a computer, go look up Lamb L A M Crowley and look up the drawing that he did. What you're immediately going to see is this dude, dude maybe I don't know yeah, this maybe. genderless creature Right. with tiny little slit eyes, tiny little mouth big bulbous head and like grayish white skin. Anybody who is a fan of the paranormal is going to look at him and think, wow, that looks a lot like an alien, like a stereotypical alien. Yeah. Um, There's some major differences, like the eyes are very different. Like uh, the traditional gray alien is a, you know, the head and the mouth and everything is the same. But they have sort of almond-shaped solid black eyes, whereas mm. lamb had these thin little slits for eyes and vertical pupils, Ooh. which I don't—I've never seen aliens represented with pupils before, no. so that's that's an interesting little tidbit. Um, and the skin is more of like a light sort of creamish color rather than like the gray of a gray alien. Mm-hmm. But that could all be chalked up to things like, you know, variations in an individual species. Mm-hmm. Um it could just be that this particular being, like maybe they evolved over time and he was seeing this being in some form of its evolution or something. Right. Who in knows? an
0: earlier stage than the more commonly cited aliens.
1: Right. The, the, the zeta reticulin aliens. Um, so it bears more than a passing resemblance to a gray alien. And mm. bear in mind, this was 1917. So for some context... The sort of popularization of the archetypical gray alien was from the Barney and Betty Hill abduction that occurred in New Hampshire in yes. 1961, so almost 50 years later, mm-hmm. was sort of the the genesis of the gray alien in popular culture. Mm-hmm. Then, in the 1980s, with the publication of Whitley Schreiber's book Communion, which if you look up a picture of that cover has the stereotypical gray alien. Awesome. That's sort of the genesis of where we, you know, growing up watching the X-Files and just seeing gray aliens sort of ubiquitously throughout pop culture, generates in like the 60s and 80s. So for um, Alistair Crowley to have seen this being back in 1917, it's not like he's just drawing on like archetypes from pop culture. He's right. seeing something unique in... At least to his own experience, if not, you know, the universe. Um, so Crowley has this experience with Lamb, and Crowley had a whole sort of like set of groupies and people people who follow Crowley. Um, one of his groupies actually said specifically that Lamb didn't refer to an individual, but that Lamb referred to a class of beings. <laughs> So lamb or a lamb would be equivalent to, soar, say, something like a gray alien, mm-hmm. you know, where it's a, a race or a species of this alien, um, which just kind of lends more credence to that if you believe that this was sort of human's first contact with a gray alien of some kind, that it's not just the individual gray alien, it's a representation of a species. Interesting. So that's sort of the 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 main gist of what happened with Crowley's experience with Lamb. Not super in depth. Mm-hmm. The only sort of detail that Crowley gives is that in his conversation with Lamb, the symbolism of the egg came up a lot. Interesting. He doesn't elaborate as to what that means. Hmm. Maybe I mean you know in you know UFO culture, Greys are very concerned with. Um, like abducting people and doing medical experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's theories that they're trying to breed human alien hybrids. So maybe the reference to the egg would be something of like, you know, like a woman's eggs or fertility or something like that.
0: She's like, um, yo, I need some eggs, dude. I need some eggs. Can, can I have some?
1: And I mean, he did engage in some weird sex act in order to make this working happen. Yeah. So,
0: Alistair's like, dude, I don't have any eggs for you, <laughs> right. but this chick right here, she does. Maybe
1: yeah. she does. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Um no dude. So since then there's been a lot of sort of conversation about what happened. So one of Crowley's followers, a man named Kenneth Grant, he had these quotes to say. So they would many people have tried to perform the amalantra working since Crowley did his. Mm-hmm. Um there's a phrase in his sort of groupies like vernacular. It's if Crowley did it, I want to do it. I'm probably paraphrasing there, but... You're way too trusting. Right. So, this one guy, Kenneth Grant, as he was performing the amalantra working, he said, To gaze into the eyes of this entity is to invite potent contact. One feels an immediate sensation of lightness or weightlessness and a sensation of falling, of being sucked into a vortex. The eyes will enlarge and will suck in your consciousness until they're arises a sensation of being within the entity's head.
0: Whoa.
1: And this is presented as being a good thing.
0: Okay. I mean, that sounds... doesn't sound horrible. Right. It weirdly remind. Have you seen the movie Fire in the Sky? No. Oh, man. It's really unfortunate how inaccurate it is as far as, like, the actual encounter that the guy had. Oh really? But the movie itself is so creepy. Really? And there's a scene where the guy is in the spaceship and he's like he's literally floating around, which just like I just immediately came to mind. Right. Though that was not a fun experience. Interesting. But I wouldn't mind the weightless feeling. That sounds cool.
1: Right. Being just... it's almost like you're like melding your consciousness with Lamb or Jesus. With the maybe they're like a, a race of like they have like the hive mind kind of mentality. I
0: was just thinking about that. Isn't that weird. Holy shit!
1: So you're they're sort of like assimilating you into their hive mind yeah. to share their knowledge with you.
0: Well, I was thinking about that just in the sense that the alien, yeah, rather than giving a individual name for like this is who I am, like yeah, it was more the collective. Oh, interesting. This is who we are. Right. Which I know you don't like Star Trek. <laughs> Gray does not like Star Trek, but. Um, in Next Generation, there's right. the race called the Borg, yep. and they have a hive mind. Oh
1: yeah, very and so that. they
0: refer to themselves as like "We are Borg." Right. It's not. There was a whole episode that centered around this one Borg that they ended up finding and brought onto the ship, and it was a whole big thing. Right. Because the Borg are the enemy, like the enemy. Right. But um, they brought him onto the ship, and they ended up kind of getting close to him. And naming him, and it was like a whole big thing, and he started to kind of feel his individuality again because the Borg are either humans or other races that have been, you know, brought into, yeah, assimilated into the Borg. So Mm. that makes me think of that again. Not that's not a positive thing because their whole goal is to destroy everybody, to assimilate them, which maybe that's what aliens are doing. I don't know, right? But it still seems interesting that I mean, yeah, maybe aliens don't have any concept of individuality, right? We don't really know,
1: right. It would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, And when you look at it sort of in the larger context of UFO and extraterrestrial culture, if this is sort of the first contact, modern contact that we've had with extraterrestrials, then the way I think about it... So Crowley, quote, died in 1947, Mm. which is the same year that Roswell happened. So imagine for a moment... Crowley opens this portal to where Lamb is able to come through and visit him, and then this allows them to find our location in the solar system, and maybe it took them, what, 30 years? It's like 30 years exactly mm-hmm. to get from wherever they are to the United States. Sure. Sure. And they crashed in Roswell, New Mexico, maybe on their way to pick up Crowley. Maybe they successfully picked up Crowley. Yeah. Who knows? my shit. Um, but, like, a lot of people look at this as, like, what if Aleister Crowley is responsible for, like, initiating contact with the Greys and sort of is the one who started all of the modern alien interaction with humans? Right. By opening this portal and being the first one to sort of, like, open this portal to an inter- interdimensional being. Holy shit. It's interesting, too. Another little side note. So, our boy John Keel. who
0: our wrote, boy.
1: Who wrote Mothman Prophecies. Yes! His belief was that the Mothman and other alien encounters were due to occult activity in the area immediately preceding the mothman occurrences and Whoa. a lot of ufo experiences as well damn so he made a strong connection between the occult and paranormal phenomena dang outside of just like straight up demonic stuff yeah so shit john keel's a
0: pretty smart dude he's a pretty smart dude i like that dude right I want to meet that dude Is So he still alive oh good question I shit i don't know
1: i don't should think so that. I feel like he's dead. You think so? Yeah, I that's can too bad. feel it, and if I can feel it, it's probably true.
0: <laughs> it's probably true, right? Shit, because you guys have a hive mind together.
1: R.I.P. John Keel. <laughs> you mean John Keel? Maybe
0: shouldn't say R.I.P. Yet. I Maybe. shouldn't, he especially might not, if he I, might I don't know listening. he's not dead. We don't know. He's listening, and he's like, "Come on, guys, I'm <laughs> not dead. I'm still here doing shit." Wow, that is awesome.
1: So yeah, is that's that I've had vaguely heard about this a few times, and I wanted to delve into it, and yeah. it's really interesting because it it really does feel like the first modern interaction with an extraterrestrial being, an interdimensional being, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it, and maybe preceded the whole modern era of UFO and alien encounters.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I had no idea. Again, I knew the name Alistair Carly. I think I even had heard the name Lamb, but I just had no idea what it was. Right. So that was fucking fascinating. Interesting. And can't even tell you Our last double topic, like, played in perfectly with each other, and this one plays in perfectly because, like, you said a few things that I was like, holy shit, this, like, connects so well. Interesting. We did not plan this. Oh, God, no. I should just say to all of you listening, we picked the topic of UFOs and, like, aliens in general because we knew we hadn't really done that. Right. We had done a cryptid, we had done a non-paranormal thing, and then we had done the portals to hell. Right. Right. So we were like, what is a thing we haven't done yet? We did not pick these to coordinate. No. We literally just... We told each other the name of what we were doing just so we wouldn't do the same thing. Right. But neither of us knew the details of the other one.
1: I don't know anything so. that Justy's about to talk about. Nothing. I have no idea.
0: And you're going to hear, when I go into this, how perfectly this goes together. It's Amazing. Wild. Hive mind. <laughs> All right, you ready for this?
1: I think so. Let's go.
0: Okay. So my topic is Kenneth Arnold, who... Um, Born in 1915. Okay. He was an American aviator and businessman, and he is best known for making what is considered, generally considered, the first widely reported modern UFO sighting in the United States. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, tiny background on him, not super important, but he was born in Minnesota. If okay. there's any Minnesota listeners. Minnesota. Um, but he grew up in Montana, went to the University of Minnesota. Great. He actually ran unsuccessfully for Lieutenant Governor of Idaho in 1962. I don't even know. That was after all this, though. Hmm. Um, So, uh, I can probably just jump right into his sighting, because that's just... This whole story begins with his sighting, really. Dive in. Um, So, get ready for this. June 24th, 1947, (laughs) the year that Aleister Crowley dies. Wow. Yeah, or whatever happened to him. Um. Kenneth Arnold was flying from, I don't know the geography of Washington State very well, so maybe some of you do. Um, I'm just going off names here. Okay. But he was flying from Chihallis, Washington to Yakima, Washington in on a business trip. Um, he made a brief detour. He learned about there was a reward for this transport airplane from the Marines that had crashed uh, near Mount Rainier. So he went... To go looking for it Because he was like Sweet $5,000 reward Why not Um A few minutes before 3pm He's near Mineral Washington Gave up his search He looked around He's like This isn't here I'm not gonna find it So he starts Heading eastward Towards Yakima Which is where The airport was Um He saw a bright Flashing light Similar to Sunlight reflecting From a mirror He was initially Just worried that he Was close to another Aircraft Um, He looked all around him, he scanned the skies All he could see was this one other Aircraft near him about 15 miles away But that was it He said it was a completely clear day Totally mild, like totally chill Flying day Hmm. But this one other plane a little bit behind him, that's it So about 30 seconds later He sees a series of Bright flashes in the distance off to his left um, North of Mount Rainier Which was about 20 to 25 Miles away from him He thought that maybe... Like, he's a very reasonable dude. He's obviously a smart guy, a pilot. So his next thought is it's probably reflections on the windows. Right. You know, there's snow. It's maybe just some glare. Um, But he did some tests. He rocked his airplane from side to side. He removed his eyeglasses. He even later rolled down his window. He repositioned himself so he could roll down the window, which I didn't even know was a thing. I think you can do that in a plane. In a plane. I mean, he's in just a little passenger, like, whatever, one-person, two-person plane. I don't know. Hmm. But... Yeah, rolled down the window and ruled out the fact, you know, it being reflections. So he quickly realizes that these are coming from some flying objects of some kind. Again, he his first thought then is, oh, it's probably a flock of geese. OK, that that's a thing. They are around that area.
1: Right.
0: Um, but he kind of I'm like picturing him just in this plane, like going through these scenarios like, nope, can't be this. He decides, like, because of the altitude, he's at, like, 9,200 feet. Uh, the glint, like, this yeah, mirror-like glint that he's getting from these objects, like, can't be these geese. Hmm. And he said that they were obviously going at a very fast speed. They were, like, kind of keeping pace with him. So he's like, no. Um, he thinks that maybe it's a new type of jet. You know, right. he's experienced in flying craft. He's like, this must be something I haven't seen.
1: Right.
0: Um, he looked for, like, a tail on the aircraft, and he didn't find one. So finally, he's trying to get a good look at these things. He's trying to get a little closer. And then they passed in front of Mount Rainier, which is covered in snow. So he kind of got like a profile against the bright white snowfield. And even then, they were kind of like they're flipping around all erratically. Hmm. Um, he gets sort of a, a different an idea of what they look like. Um, he said that when he saw them on edge, when they would turn a certain way, they were so thin and flat, they were practically invisible.
1: That's wild.
0: Super weird. Um, he described them as, like, a series of objects with convex shapes, although he later, his description of the shapes of them kind of varies, Hmm. at least for me. Like, I feel like I try to picture what he's seeing based on his various descriptions, and they kind of don't all match.
1: Well, imagine, I mean, if we are going to assume that these are UFOs Mm. that sort of don't obey our laws of physics, which is how you know it's a UFO, who knows if it's possible to sort of, like bend and twist and shape in ways that we're not used to right as it bends space and time around it or yeah who knows
0: i mean it makes no sense of anything that we know of that something could turn on its side and almost disappear if anything that
1: kind of adds more credibility to it because if it was just one simple shape that he was able to track for a long time you'd be like oh it's just like an experimental aircraft or something that the government doesn't want you to know about right but if it's like sort of behaving in ways that aren't Known to humans Yeah That's wild Like what's going on known to a pilot Right Who who knows These crafts Right
0: Um, Yeah he He describes them As being crescent shaped Um, A few years later He Sort of likened Their movement To saucers Skipping on water um, Which actually Yeah yeah, That's where the term Flying saucer came from Wow So he didn't actually He only used the word Saucer In describing how they moved but I guess one of the people who interviewed him or in one of the newspaper articles, it was referred to as flying saucer, even though wow. he really wasn't describing the shape, um, wow, which is so interesting. The
1: whole, like, circular classic UFO that we yeah. use, like, for our like our, um, our logo artwork, yeah. for uh, a noble yeah. is like a classic circle saucer UFO. And that's not even yeah. accurate. Right. Well,
0: at least not for this guy.
1: Wow. Well, interesting. He,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the various things he compared the shape to was uh, a disc. They referred to as discs frequently, okay. which that seems yeah. like saucer shape. Like, see what I mean? Like, some of his wording is like kind of like well,
1: hmm.
0: not a saucer but a disc. Like, what's the difference?
1: So he described it as crescent shaped and then disc shaped. So mm. imagine you have something circular that's moving so fast it kind of blurs. Mm. It would probably look relatively crescent shaped, right? right.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I know. I've been trying to picture it the whole time. Uh, pie pan, half moon generally convex and thin so yeah at some point and he's still trying to figure out like what the hell are these things um how fast are they going he's trying to really figure out like the details of this because he's still just convinced that these must be some craft he's never seen right he knew his position and he knew where they kind of disappeared behind like a sub-peak of mount rainier um and he knew the position of the sub-peak and where he was so he kind of could tell that they flew past him about 23 miles away. And then he ended up... He still had that other aircraft near him. He used this little gauge tool that he had to estimate their size. Um, he estimated them about 60 feet wide. And again, this is a series of nine craft that are all flying in kind of a formation together. Hmm. He later described them as almost seeming like they were... Like, not that he could see it, but like they, the way they moved was as if they were attached by like a string... Just the way they moved was, like, perfectly hmm. in sync together. Like, if one of them went up, they would all kind of go up together. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, and he realized that they had to be pretty big if, at his distance, he could still see so much detail. Right. Even with them being relatively far away. Um, yeah, he described them being grouped together um, in a diagonally stepped-down echelon formation stretched out over a distance that he later calculated to be about five miles. So five miles worth of these crafts. Um, hmm. Yeah, he later said that they weaved from side to side, quote, like the tail of a Chinese kite. I feel like that kind of gives you a good visual.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah I get that now.
0: They were kind of darting around, again, like very erratic. Um, they would flip or bank on their edges. They would they were kind of going in unison. Um, and often when they would turn, they would like give off these super bright mirror-like flashes of light. So... But yeah, he said the encounter gave him a, quote, eerie feeling, but he suspected that he had just witnessed flights of a new military aircraft. Right.
1: I mean, this was 1947, two years after World War II, yep. height of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. It's very conceivable that the U.S. would have been testing something strange, but exactly. it's also not any behavior of something that I feel like we were capable of creating at that time.
0: Right. Yeah. So he this is when he ended up turning his plane kind of in a parallel course. He rolled down his window whenever I'm just, I'm picturing him like sticking his elbow out the window. I don't really think that's accurate, but right? he's just like, Hey, um, yeah, he kind of watched them for a little bit. He ended up timing their rate of passage. He knew, well, at the time he didn't know, but he watched them go from Mount Rainier to Mount Adams, which okay. is fairly close together, um, where they then faded from view. And so later on, when he got back to the airport, he had timed, it took them one minute and 42 seconds To get from one to the other. And when he landed. He was able to look up the distance. And it was about 50 miles. Um, And so he ended up kind of estimating. That they were going somewhere around 1700 miles an hour. (sighs) So cool. Which this at this time. This was about three times faster than any manned aircraft. Known in 1947 anyways. Interesting. So yeah. So yeah he lands in Yakima. But an hour later, he told his friend and the airport manager, Al Baxter, um, which he said that Al Baxter kind of laughed at him and was like, okay, sure. Yeah. Sure you did. Hmm. Kenneth. Um,
1: classic Kenneth.
0: Classic Kenneth. But uh, he said about, he told some of the staff, like, kind of just, you know, again, he wasn't at all being like, oh my God, I saw UFO, like aliens. He was just like, dude, isn't this crazy? Right. Um, he said about the next day, everybody knew. Like, hmm. this just... Through, like, wildfire, he was going to, like, some air show, he just kind of, like, stopped at the airport, chatted with people, and then he went on to his next thing. He wasn't at all, like, freaking out, like, oh my god, I gotta figure this out. He was just like, okay, like, on with my day.
1: Like He wasn't seeking fame for his Not saving. at all.
0: Not at all. Um, yeah, he, he talked with some of his, like, pilot friends, and said that they all, again, like, they were just like, oh, maybe you saw some guided missiles, maybe it was some new craft, like, nobody initially was saying UFOs. Or, you know, technically a UFO is just unidentified flying object, which is what this was. But nobody was saying right. aliens. Right. Nobody was saying extraterrestrial or interdimensional beings. <laughs> um, and even some former army pilots told him that they had been briefed before going into combat, quote, that they might see objects of similar shape and design as he had described and assured me that I wasn't dreaming or going crazy. So he was very much in, like, the reasonable state of mind as far as just, like, wonder what cool thing I just witnessed. Hmm. So, he was re- interviewed by reporters the next day, June 25th. Um, he went to this small paper in Pendleton. Um, it said, the thing that I read said, any skepticism the reporters may have harbored evaporated when they interviewed him at length. A um, hi- historian, Mike Dash, records, quote, Arnold had the makings of a reliable witness. He was a respected businessman and experienced pilot and seemed to be neither exaggerating what he had seen nor adding sensational details re- to his report. And he was super detailed. He, again, was a pilot. He was used to giving these very detailed reports. Um, I have here, like, his five- or six-page report that he gave, including a drawing of the craft, and it's incredibly detail-oriented. It's not at all ranting and raving. Yeah, not at all. So, and then even two days later, he was already complaining about the negative impacts that all this publicity had on his life. Right. Um, He... Said that he had a preacher call him and tell him that the objects he saw were harbingers of doomsday. Um, and that the preacher told him he was preparing his congregation for the end of the world. And in another encounter, he went into a cafe and a woman noticed him, recognized him, and ran out shrieking, there's the man who saw the men from Mars. Wow. Which again, he made no mention. Right. In these initial interviews or one initial interview hmm. about any aliens.
1: Wow. Um, Why would that be, even if he did, why would that be caused to, like, run away from him? I don't know.
0: Like, she, yeah, she ran out, quote, sobbing she would have to do something for the children. What? Yeah, I don't, don't even know. What does that even mean? He's just, like, over this. He added afterwards, quote, this whole thing has gotten out of hand. I want to talk to the FBI or someone. Half the people look at me as a combination of Einstein, Flash Gordon, and Screwball. I wonder what my wife back in Idaho thinks. So he's just like, what the fuck? Like, why did I tell anybody about this? Right, right. Not at all. Like, that's the classic assumption with people who see unusual, unexplained things. Is like, right. oh, they just want the attention. Right. They just want a story. They just want whatever. But he, like, two days in is, like, over it. He's like, what the fuck? Hmm. Why did I do this? Um, but he uh, basically, like, you know, reports this stuff. He gets no contact at all from any of the military. And so by July 7th, he does start bringing up the idea of them being some extraterrestrial origin Hmm. because in his mind, he's kind of like, you would think the military would be the first person to reach out to me. If they weren't responsible for this, um, that you'd think that they would at least want to figure out what it was because they would be curious right? as to like, what did you see? Like, that's interesting. That makes sense. So he kind of was like, maybe, maybe they were. Um, yeah, he told the Chicago times if, Our government knows anything about these devices, the people should be told at once. A lot of people out here are very much disturbed. Some think these things may be from another planet, but they aren't harming anyone, and I think it would be the wrong thing to shoot one of them down, even if it can be done. Their high speed would completely wreck them. I'm not sure who he's referring to as shooting them down, but he's just essentially of the mindset of, like, if the government knows, they need to say something.
1: Interesting. Which Which I kind of agree with. Sure. That's Um, an interesting whole side note. Does the government know? Have they known this whole time?
0: Right. Exactly. So his whole thing was he was convinced at this point that because of how erratically and abruptly these craft were able to maneuver these peaks, that there was no way that there could be people, you know, manning these things. Right. Um, That they couldn't have survived the pressure. Which.
1: Right. I've heard that. Like how UFOs, they exhibit behavior where if a human were in it then the g-forces or just the physics of doing it would literally like liquefy our insides Mm -hmm. or like just like we were like all the blood would rush out of our head and we would like die yeah so while it's i guess possible that they could be like remotely driven by humans the fact that humans being in them just doesn't make physical sense
0: doesn't make sense and the fact that when it turns on its side it's like almost invisible i mean how could there be a person in there
1: right unless it's some way contorting space and time i've heard right. that there's a like if you think about it in terms of like a ufo rather than a ufo moving through space mm. the ufo moves space around it mm-hmm. which is a mind fuck to think about but
0: yeah
1: i guess it would make sense in that context because you're contorting space and time around your craft that it would appear as if it was flat even if it wasn't
0: mm-hmm. or if we're talking about interdimensional beings like for some reason again this made me think of um which this is a topic for a later this may be a multi-part topic but skinwalker ranch
1: yeah oh yeah yeah there was
0: like that one bit yes, about, yes like the, oh, the yeah the ufo is like coming from like the one person was looking through like a telescope or something right because they saw some weird stuff and then they saw like it come out of nowhere.
1: It came out of like a, it was like a hole, mm-hmm. but yeah. it was like a flat hole yeah. that was floating in space.
0: Because they he's... could see the stars, like there were tons of stars, yeah. and then all of a sudden this just black...
1: Uh, no, it was daytime. Oh, that's they right. Could... It was daytime. It was nighttime, like in Scar- Skinwalker Ranch, and then they saw a hole yes. of daylight. Yes. And these craft were coming out of a flat hole of it's daylight. so much
0: worse. Yeah, exactly. Interesting.
1: So yeah, that's... Yeah, maybe so maybe they're... they're
0: kind of, I don't know, warping in and out of...
1: Right, like a wormhole in another.
0: So who maybe knows? that's
1: how they move so fast.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so he he's convinced that there's not people in these. Um, he thinks they are controlled from elsewhere, regardless of whether it's from Mars, Venus, or our own planet. Was one of the quotes. <laughs> so again, he's very much like, maybe it's aliens. Maybe it's just our government, dude. Right. Like it's probably just the government, but they're not giving me any answers. So maybe it's extraterrestrials. I don't know. Um. Yeah, so he, he just has no... And he says himself many times in interviews that, like, I know this sounds crazy when he refers to them being from another planet. Like, he's not at all 100% convinced. Right. He's just like, I don't know what else this could be. Right. You know, I have experience in flying. I know that these things aren't possible. I know that these things haven't been developed yet as far as we know. So either I'm witnessing some kind of secret thing or this is something that can't be explained. Right. Um. So yeah, he gets, like, really into it. He um, And the thing about this is that his story is already so awesome, but there were a bunch of other people who saw very similar things. Hmm. Um, there was a prospector named Fred Johnson, who was on Mount Adams, um, who wrote the Army and Info- Air Force Intelligence that he saw the same day, around the same time he saw six of those objects, which he saw through a telescope. He said they were, quote, round and tapered sharply to a point in the head and in an oval shape and that they seemed to disturb his compass, Hmm. which is interesting. Um, He was evaluated by the Army Air Force intelligence, and they found him to be credible. Um, Weirdly enough, they dismissed Arnold's uh, sighting as a mirage, but somehow this Fred Johnson ends up being in Air Force files as the first unexplained UFO report. Which is really odd.
1: Weird. I would f- so much more go with. I mean, I don't know about the prospector, what,
0: yeah, what kind of a person
1: is. he is, but like, I would go with the trained pilot and who then, yeah, knows what he's looking. They both at.
0: were deemed credible. Right. It's not even like Arnold was written off as like, no, hmm. that dude. Like he's always got stories. Like they were right. like, oh yeah, super respectable dude. Interesting. So cool. Um, the Portland Oregon Journal reported on July fourth that they had gotten a letter from somebody named L G Bernier of Richland Washington, which is about. 110 miles east of Mount Adams, southeast of Mount Rainier. Um, the report came in July 4th, but this had been the same day. This person had seen three of the objects flying, quote, almost edgewise towards Mount Rainier about 30 minutes before Kenneth Arnold.
1: Hmm.
0: He, yeah. Also flying at a very high speed. Craziness. There was a woman named Ethel Wheelhouse who um, northwest northwest of richland in yakima which is where the airport was right that he landed at who also reported seeing several flying discs around the same time as arnold's um military intelligence starts investigating they found yet another witness from the area a member of the washington state forest service who had been like on a at one of the towers on watch in diamond gap which is about 20 miles south of yakima on 3 p.m on the 24th hmm. at 3 p.m same day saw interesting, more crafts moving in a straight line together. Um, and then there was also another Sydney B Gallagher in Washington State. They don't know the exact position, but they had seen nine shiny disks. So a bunch of people hmm. saw the same weird shit. Weird. Yeah.
1: That's a lot of people spread over a large geographic area that all saw the same thing. Exactly. Very similar experiences. Yeah. Around the same time period, too. Mm-hmm. It's wild.
0: Yep. There were other Seattle area newspapers had people reporting sightings of flashing rapidly moving unknown objects on the same day, but not at the same time, but still same day. Um, there were at least 16 other reported UFO sightings the same day as Arnold in the Washington state area. Wow. What the hell, man? Like something happened. There. Some
1: They saw that I'm like a big believer. If you have like a large population of people yeah. who are spread over a large geographic area who all report similar things, they saw something, something, whether or not you believe that's a UFO, whether or not you believe it's some government aircraft, mm-hmm. they saw something,
0: something. Yep. The, the biggest corroborative sighting that they considered was, um, 10 days later, July 4th, 4th of July. Woo. There was a United airlines crew over Idaho en route to Seattle. Um, they saw five to nine. I don't know if this was just pe- different people reported different numbers. Right. Um, disc-like objects that paced their plane for 10 to 15 minutes before just disappearing Hmm. yeah so the next day Arnold met with the pilot and the co-pilot they compared details Um, they kind of had some like very small differences in the details but Arnold felt that this was very reliable Um, he actually thought that some of the others were the public seeing things and letting their imaginations run wild so he was Hmm. like very much wanting to talk to whoever he could to be like, did we see the same shit? Right. And he wasn't even, you know, again, like he wasn't like off the deep end, like whoa, right? Aliens, like he was like, nah. Trying
1: to like be scientific about it, like yeah. debunk it. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. Yep. Um, there was also a sighting of eight objects over Tulsa, Oklahoma, on July 12th. This actually has a photo. Which, side note, I'm gonna try to get our show notes up on the website. Yeah. Finally. I will do my best to do some retroactive ones for the past episodes, but at the very least we'll start with this one, so I can include the things you mentioned in these photos. Yeah. But there's a photo. A man named Enlo Gilmore took it. He thought that when you blow up the photo, they kind of looked like flying wings, which is hmm. interesting. And also a type of aircraft in itself that really looks like a wing. Interesting. It's kind of cool. Um. Yeah. So he also, strangely enough, he had been a gunnery officer in the Navy during the war, and using information from another witness, also a veteran, they kind of triangulated and estimated the speed of the craft, which they came to the exact same speed that Arnold did. Oh, wow. 1,700 miles per hour. Hmm. And he said that one of the objects seemed to have a hole in the middle. So I don't know what the deal is with that. And then another dude, William Rhodes, on July 7th, (coughs) took... Several photos of a single UFO over Phoenix. So okay. just all over the place.
1: It's almost like moving from the oh, yeah. northwest Let me show you that. South to the southeast. Yeah,
0: there's a map. I have a map. <laughs> I will also put that in show notes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, this, these photos also show something looking like a hole in the middle that William Rhodes thought was a canopy. I really should have looked that up because I was like, what the fuck? What does that mean? i have no idea like maybe that has some other meaning <clears throat> in the context of aircraft or military i don't know if somebody listening to this knows tell me right or i can just probably look it up myself but <laughs> i was like what um so his negatives and prints were confiscated by the fbi and military which seemed shady at first but they did turn up later in the official report so yeah hmm. yeah a whole bunch of people saw shit
1: yeah so um, they saw something.
0: Yeah, and the thing is that his... So Kenneth Arnold's account was featured in, you know, some newspapers like as early as the 25th, the day after his sighting. Right. And U.S. papers, Canadian papers, even some foreign papers, uh, on the 26th, on the front page, and he said, with the without exception, it was initially related with a serious even-handed tone. Hmm. This was not at all like in tabloid type of stuff right making fun of him whatever this was like very serious shit which is wild to think about back nowadays. when you like,
1: back when you could still like have a serious even handed article about a news of uh ufo and it like yeah. wasn't like made fun of or like joked about
0: yeah it's wild mm. even to think that, that i mean in the 40s right people were just like oh shit it's gotta be real Yeah, so in the weeks that followed, um, there were hundreds of reports of similar sightings from the U.S. and around the world Um, His report and that United Airlines report got tons of media and newspaper articles But there were about 853 collected reports of flying disc sightings that year from 140 newspapers From Canada, Washington, D.C. And you're gonna like this I don't know why, but you're gonna like it Every U.S. state except Montana. What the fuck? Montana? Huh. Every state except Montana. That's why on my map it says no sightings. Right there.
1: What the Weird. fuck?
0: Yeah. Um. wonder
1: what's in Montana.
0: I don't know. Yeah, why aren't they aliens Maybe or whatever? Government? They like, Who don't want to
1: fly over it. Why yeah. don't they want to fly from Montana? I have no idea. I, I mean, thought that was interesting. I've been to Montana. There ain't, there ain't much there, but... Yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah. So, Very interesting. Uh, the U.S. military denied having any planes at all in the area of Mount Rainier at the time of the sighting, of
1: course. As they would, even um, if they did have planes up there.
0: Right. They would never. So, um, so one of the coolest things, I think, about this, in a way, is that this eventually was investigated by the military. Um, Lieutenant Frank Brown and Captain William Davidson of Hamilton Field in California interviewed Arnold on July 12th, so that was a few weeks after his sighting, um, and he submitted a written report. They concluded regarding his reliability of his story. Quote, it is the present opinion of the interviewer that Mr. Arnold actually saw what he stated he saw. It is difficult to believe that a man of his character and apparent integrity would state that he saw objects and write up a report to the extent that he did and i've got it right here and it is extensive hmm. um if he did not see them but despite them finding him very credible they their formal public conclusion by the army air force was that he had seen a mirage interesting so they really i mean that quote kind of conflicts with their conclusion because they're like yeah we totally believe he saw what he says but then they're like nah it,
1: it was, was a mirage it was a mirage you're fine that seems so much like swamp gas or yeah. like some like bullshit just yeah. to like sweep it under the rug because like we don't want to either we don't want to investigate this further and figure out what he actually saw mm-hmm. or we know what he saw and we don't want anybody to know that we know well, what he saw.
0: This next point. So just a few days before <laughs> that, and they obviously knew of his sighting. They had heard about it. Right. Um, July 9th, they, Army Air Force Intelligence with help from the FBI secretly began an investigation of the best sightings that had been reported so far, hmm. which included mostly pilots and military personnel. Included Arnold's and included the United Airlines. Um, three weeks later, they came to the conclusion that the saucer reports were not imaginary or adequately explained by natural phenomena. Something real was flying around. I put that in bold because it like gave me chills.
1: That's wild. Yeah. Something real.
0: hmm Um, this laid the groundwork for, there was another intelligence investigation, um, in September, including this general Nathan Twining, uh, Which, again, concluded that they were real, and urged he urged a formal investigation by multiple government agencies. So this, in turn, resulted in the formation of Project Sign at the end of 1947, which was the first publicly acknowledged United States Air Force UFO investigation. Wow. How crazy is that? Um, That eventually evolved, I think, a couple years later into Project Grudge, which was the same idea, which then turned into the better-known Project Blue Book. Yes. Yes, which picked up from where grudge left off in 52 and continued until there was a termination order given in 1969 that essentially was just like, we can't justify this anymore. Um, But yeah, they had compiled reports between 52 and 96 or wow, 69 um, of more than 12,000 UFO sightings. Jeez. They categorized more than 90% of those as identified. Okay. Which means that they were some kind of phenomena that we can explain, some kind of um, astronomical event, atmospheric event. Um, But about 6% were still classified as unidentified. Interesting. So, but just kind of cool that this is basically what spurred those projects to be started. Right. Because... I've definitely
1: heard of Project Blue Book.
0: Yeah. I hadn't heard of the other two, but, like, knowing that they all kind of
1: morphed into each other, I was like,
0: what? Yeah. So, crazy-ass shit. So, there's a few skeptical theories. Some have said that it's just mirages. Right. Um. Some have said that he saw some meteors, which has been argued that it wouldn't be possible. They would have to be going so slow for them to be moving, like, at a horizontal trajectory like that. And for right. so long, which, like, even just thinking about it, I don't know much about that stuff, but it makes no sense that there'd be no. a meteor, like... Bouncing around erratically around these mountains, like what the hell? Like disappearing and reappearing, like that just doesn't make sense.
1: It makes no sense.
0: Um, Some say that he. This actually brings us back to Mothman in a weird way, because some say that he saw pelicans. So another weird ass thing that's just like some birds, a bunch
1: of sandhill cranes flying around (laughs) the fucking, just
0: some fucking birds. Um, They live in the region. They're large. They have a pale underside. They can fly at high altitudes, and they can appear to have somewhat of a crescent shaped profile when flying. Um, but again, it's been argued that they couldn't fly as fucking fast as he reported. Like, no fucking pelicans flying seventeen hundred miles per hour—that's
1: um, <laughs> that's just not a thing. Wild. Also, he saw those geese and positively identified. Right. Or no. He, he thought they were geese. Seeing geese. Never mind. But
0: yeah, he just like and just the way he described it, like there's just no way hmm. that this could be a thing. No. Um. So one of the theories is sort of like the Occam's Razor point of view, which if you guys don't know, it's the idea that like the simplest explanation is the most likely one, that uh, pilots at certain elevation can have oxygen-deprived, induced hallucinations.
1: He was opening the window.
0: He was opening the window. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it says if the aircraft is not properly sealed. But, of course, that doesn't explain why there are so many other sightings. Right, that explains
1: his one experience, not the host of other ones that we're seeing everywhere else.
0: If it was just one guy, then sure, maybe he was just up there hallucinating and he's just like, what the fuck?
1: Opening the window of his aircraft. Like the windows can't even like open, but he (laughs) found a way because he's tripping. He's
0: got like his window rolled down, he's got his sunglasses down. I'm like, what the (laughs) fuck? Oh my god. Does not make sense. So um yeah, basically that. So I have a whole timeline, which is gonna get real interesting in a second. So really the biggest things, June 24th, he has his sighting. There's a whole bunch of other sightings on the same Day. This
1: is 19, June 4th,
0: 1947. June 24th, 24th. 1947. Yeah. Yes. Tons of these sightings. Um, June 26th, big milestone, newspapers start using the term flying saucer, which is hilarious because we still use that today.
1: Right, that's wild.
0: Um, June 27th, Kenneth Arnold is pissed that he doesn't have a moment of peace since all this shit broke. He's just like over it. Right. Um he starts thinking maybe they're extraterrestrials. This is crazy. There's photos taken July 7th of the similar UFO over Phoenix. July 8th, the day after those photos over Phoenix, Roswell breaks.
1: Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Arizona. Yeah, so... So he sees those. there's the sighting over Phoenix.
0: Yep. Yeah. And then New Mexico is the state over. So right. I've got a map here, which, again, will be in the notes. Um, so it starts up, up in Washington State, if right. you don't know your geography furthest northwest state in the country there's a few kind of clusters but it's kind of moving like it starts yeah. very very uh yeah northwest yeah kind of goes down goes a little south continues heading east down to richland where there's another sighting and it's kind of going you know these are all clustered in washington on the 24th um then we've got the united airlines flight which was over Idaho, which, you know, you go a little bit further southeast yep. down to Idaho. So that's July 4th. Then you go way down, um, super down south to Phoenix, but still heading east. Um, that's July 7th, the Rhodes photo in Phoenix. Right. And then, boom, you go straight east to Roswell the next day.
1: That's wild. So we, the Roswell crash could have been one of that formation of
0: nine. Yeah, exactly. Craft. Because then... A few days later, on the 12th, there was another sighting, um, that sighting in Tulsa, where there's more photos. So it seems like it's just moving, hmm. initially moving south, but ultimately it's just moving east. Interesting. Which is crazy! Um, so yeah, I thought that was just a cool tie-in with Roswell being like, right. holy shit.
1: And one of those. Also, to tie it into my topic, yes. so that last sighting occurred in July yep. of 1947. Yeah. Alistair Crowley died December 1st, 1947. Mm -hmm. So if these craft are sort of moving steadily east across the United States, Alistair Crowley died in England. Mm -hmm. So it's conceivable that they just went over and sort of picked him up and brought him to wherever they were going. And he might have been the intended target this whole time. And they just kind of came down to earth wherever they first showed up. And then they had to figure out where Crowley was. And he could have been doing his, his workings to tell them where he was this whole time yeah crowley died supposedly of bronchitis but he was cremated we couldn't even dig up his bones and test to make sure those are his actual bones if we wanted to
0: yeah we don't know where he is
1: seems very convenient yeah could have been a lookalike could have been who knows maybe maybe crowley lived out the rest of his days on board those crescent shaped flying saucers
0: which would be kind of awesome that's wild. Yeah. So and I just thought it was too weird that, like, when I started looking up, I, like, when I made the timeline, I was like, huh, seems like these are kind of moving in somewhat of a pattern. Right. And then I made the map, and I'm like, what? And, yeah, just Roswell happening right in the midst of that. Right. Just seems too perfect.
1: It's interesting.
0: Super interesting. I mean, like, a day later right. than one of the other sightings. Like, not even, like, oh, six months later, Roswell. Wow. but.
1: So your story really does, although so it deals with the genesis of the term flying saucer. Mm-hmm. It deals with Roswell, ties into Roswell, which yep. is arguably the sort of foundation of all alien sort of experiences in the modern era. Yep. Um, and it ties in with Aleister Crowley. Yeah. Who maybe saw the first gray alien.
0: Which again, we like did not plan this, but it, it's just oh, too perfect that too like, perfect. maybe these same UFOs were just heading... Interesting. Over England.
1: Maybe they ended up um, going up to New York City because that's where he performed the Amalantra working. Mm -hmm. They hung out there for a few months trying to figure out where he was and realized, like, shit, he's in England.
0: Damn it. Wait, when did that happen again?
1: The Amalantra working? Yeah. It was um, in 1917.
0: Oh, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So that's that. Crazy. And, yeah, as far as I know, I mean, nothing was ever um, concluded. Right. Of course, with Roswell they said that those were just weather balloons. Yeah. So. It's all just weather balloons.
1: We'll get into that. We're going to do Roswell. Oh yeah, Roswell's going to be a thing. We're going to do Roswell justice because that's there's a lot to unpack there. There's
0: so much to unpack. We're going to do a whole like series of episodes on aliens. Yeah. Different types of aliens. Oh yeah. Whole probably multi-part thing on Roswell. Right. So this yeah. is
1: just kind of like our our beginning to where we're talking about sort of Some of the foundational experiences that people look back to now is like, oh, that's sort of where we get that from. Yeah. Flying saucers, gray aliens. That's where it starts in our modern culture. Exactly. We're going to build upon this foundation. Yep. Further episodes. Super
0: cool. Yeah, I thought it was kind of cool, too, how these went together where yours was really just dealing with the actual alien. Right. And mine was just dealing with the crafts because nobody in these sightings made any, you know, nobody was claiming to be abducted. Nobody saw any creatures. Right. That was part of the mystery is, and why people assumed that maybe it was just military, because right. there was no, nothing strictly paranormal about right. this, as far as most people were concerned. It was just, we're witnessing some kind of secret thing. But the assumption was, and if you've seen the X-Files, you're right, right to suspect the government. It's
1: always the government. They're
0: doing some shit. As far right. as I'm concerned, the X-Files might as well be a documentary.
1: More or less, yeah. More or less. Seriously. Yeah.
0: That also deals with human-alien hybrids, too.
1: Right. Go watch the first episode of, like, the new x File seasons where it breaks down the whole conspiracy and you're oh, like, yeah. holy shit, it makes so much sense.
0: mm mm-hmm. We just watched, I think we're still in season five, okay. I'm pretty sure, which, like, or maybe we're in season six. I don't know. We're somewhere around there, but, you know, things are he, getting yeah. intense. Yeah. But we just had an episode where it was pretty obviously, like, Cancer Man was telling his story to somebody and it was like this is this works in the episode but i know you're just doing this to catch some people up to be like wait what the fuck right because there's so much like wait and we have to stop episodes like we've seen this whole series like 10 times now right and even still you have to stop once in a while and be like so wait <laughs> why the fuck are they doing that right. like why Who is that? that like wait yeah. which okay that's like those are the rebel aliens and these are like but are they good like who's right. good who's bad i don't fucking know no but if you haven't seen the X-Files, go watch it. You should see the X-Files. All of it. There are so many seasons and it's so good. And Fox Mulder is the most beautiful man in the world. <laughs> I'm sure that's not why you watch it, but no. it's part of the reason I watch it.
1: I do love Mulder. Mulder's,
0: Mulder's great. Mulder's one of the
1: greatest characters to have ever been written.
0: To have ever been written in anything. He's just the greatest. He's got it all. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, yeah, first dive into aliens. Right. And UFOs. More, really for that matter.
1: Definitely more to come.
0: Way more to come. So if you have any questions or info about this topic, right. let us know. Right. Um you should definitely hit us up on Facebook. Yep. A noble podcast. Yep. Instagram, a noble podcast. Right. Follow us. We post funny memes and stuff too. It's not all about the episodes, but some of it is.
1: Extra relatable. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's great. Um, definitely if you ever have any topics you want to hear, let us know, message us on Instagram, Facebook, whatever, email us, unknowablepodcast at yahoo.com. Nice. You can go to our website, unknowablepodcast.com. You can now find us on Tumblr, Damn. which I don't know, maybe everybody's too old for that, except for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm technically too old for (laughs) that, but.
1: Everybody's too old for that. Tumblr's
0: great. Um, and yeah, you can find us on iTunes. If you do, you should give us a review or a rating. At least a rating, but a review would be super helpful, too. Yes. Tell us what you think. Um, You can also find us on Stitcher, Spotify, CastBox, TuneIn. I think that's it so far. So far. We're working on Google Play. Yep. That'll be a thing. But if there's any place that you listen to podcasts that you want to hear us, let us know.
1: Stay tuned for information about some, some exciting things in the works. Yep. For... Sort of Patreon related
0: ways to support goodies. us. Yeah. Yeah. Right now you can go to our website and go to the support us page and you can donate. You all the money that is donated, which hasn't been anything yet, but right. you could be the first. Yes. We'll all go towards podcast related expenses. Yes. Any kind of equipment upgrades, anything that we do travel wise. Right. Which that'll be a thing. Oh yeah. Um, and some places, right now we're kind of plotting out different uh, merchandise Yes. that perhaps will be, some things might be for sale and some things will be available for Patreon yep. patrons. So you should stay tuned. Stay tuned. This is a really long outro. Yes, it is. <laughs> this is a lot of info. But go check us out. Talk to us. Tell us what you think. Give us feedback. Tell us how the sound is. Yes. We're improving issues with the sound, so let us know. But yeah. Yeah. So I'm Justine. And I'm Gray. And this is... Unknowable.
1: Unknowable. Thanks for listening.